Join Anthony Esselin, John Warwick Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, August 23rd, 2018. Gonna ratchet up the discernment necessary to detect these false teachings today. Some of it will be a little easier than others, but we're going to try to mix it up a little bit. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, And compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, And we're here to help protect you. Yeah, Jesus himself warned about false teachers, false Christ, false prophets that would arise in the last days. We are currently in the last days, have been in the last days since Jesus' ascension. And uh, and so helping to protect you from the wingnuts and the greedy, uh, that's kind of an important thing. And so, uh, you know, this is a service to help take you on an adventure, if you would, to actually learn what God's Word says, what it reveals, what it teaches, uh, so that you can be protected. But all, not only that, but to like really begin to have a, a profound understanding of Scripture, uh, one for which you'll be thankful when you really begin to realize just how cool and amazing uh, what Scripture says really is. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode. I've already hinted at the idea that uh, we're going to try to ratchet it up a little bit as far as difficulty is concerned. Some episodes, <laughs> you you have to be uh, pretty much in the category of the uber-deceived to not see the problem with the teaching. And then on the other hand, you, you, you listen to certain people and you sit there and go, something's wrong here. And they're using the scripture, but you're not familiar with the technique by which they are deceiving people. And so one of the things that uh, we endeavor to do here is to show you 
how uh, these people are twisting God's word, because there's many different ways in which it can be done, uh, so that you can spot the technique if uh, your pastor happens to be engaging in it, so that you can sit there and go, whoa, 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 that was really bad. Yeah, you, you kind of get the idea. It's keep you on alert. So, you know, so think of it as, you know, if you've ever seen one of those uh, YouTube videos where they reveal how a particular magic trick is done, you know, the sleight of hand, here's how this, is, you know, here's how it it works. Yeah, that's what we're doing is we're revealing the deceitful magic trick, if you would, the, of the twisting of God's word uh, to make it look like it's teaching something that it doesn't. All right, so today we're going to, you know, we're kind of ease into it, and we'll then we'll ratchet it up in difficulty. Uh, we'll start uh, with Ryan Lestrange, uh, who is a self-proclaimed apostle. Yeah, he is. And there are other people around the, uh, the interwebs in the world who uh, refer to him as Apostle Ryan Lestrange, but he's not an apostle. He's a false apostle. And we're going to listen to his Monday word titled, Where Are the wells. And it's an interesting twist because he'll uh, reference, make mention of, uh, you know, the gospel of John where Jesus and the Samaritan woman have a conversation together. And then he's going to really interestingly, you know, apply that in in a way that it doesn't work. Uh, But uh, that's not going to stop him from at least trying. And uh, after that, we'll be listening to Andrew Womack, uh, and his um, his episode of uh, of his program, and this one is part of the series, God Wants You Well. And we're going to note that he engages in a very interesting uh, Bible-twisting technique uh, that shows that he does not know, he has not been formally trained uh, as a theologian or an exegete and doesn't know Greek. But uh, we'll show you that. And then um, somewhere in there we'll have to take a, a break because this is going to take some time. And uh, to round out hour number one, we'll be heading down to Hillsong and listen to a part of a message by Brian Houston titled Kings and Queens, Paupers and Princes. And uh, Brian Houston does something really interesting uh, with the uh, the imagery of the Met of the uh, temple. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jesus, you know, in one particular encounter he had with the Jews, uh, you know, he said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to build it in three days. And it, and then the text says the temple he was referring to was the temple of his body. And Brian Houston will no sooner correctly identify that Jesus was referring to his physical body um, and then immediately begin finding all other te- all kinds of other temples that are supposed to be rebuilt that um it doesn't work that way and uh, you'll you'll get the idea and hour number 2 we're heading down to um New Zealand and listen to John Cameron and his sermon titled here to make a difference and quite the uh, the twisting of scripture as it relates to the story of the feeding of the 5000 and the immediate text, uh, you know, uh, details that precede uh, that miracle, and talk about missing the point. It's it's breathtakingly awful what he does in the sermon. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover since we're going to be hearing from the uh, the self proclaimed 
Apostle uh, Ryan Lestrange. Let's do this. Chief Lane, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. They're laboratory mice. They're genes and they're sliced. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. They're Pinky. They're Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. All right, so we're heading over to the YouTube channel of the self-appointed, self-proclaimed apostle Ryan Lestrange and his Monday word from, well, 10 days ago, uh, titled, Where Are the Wells? And we're going to pay attention to what he's doing with the scripture on this. It's a fascinating twist. Here's Ryan Lestrange to explain. I'm Ryan Lestrange, and this is the Monday Word. I want to share with you a prophetic word uh, really came out of an encounter I just had. Where are the wells? Where are the wells? I just had... <laughs> All right, so, <laughs> boy, we didn't get too far. That was 10 whole seconds of Ryan Lestrange, and already we're off the rails. And the one of the primary reasons uh, we are off the rails is because he's claiming that he has received this revelation directly from God himself. And uh, that's where everything already is going to fall apart. And my question immediately would be, why should I believe that you, Ryan Lestrange, are receiving direct revelations from God the Holy Spirit? And uh, you know, and so the idea here is is that uh, when in the charismatic in the NAR. You know, people who get to the point where they are, you know, considered to be an apostle or a prophet, and they're receiving and claiming to be receiving direct revelation. Uh, in fact, it seems like the more revelations they claim to receive, the less people actually open up their Bibles to test them. And uh, the reason why that's bad is because, well. Uh, this is uh, the start of uh, something awful in the sense of bad theology, bad doctrine. And yet it is so clear, based upon his twisting of Scripture, which we'll see uh, momentarily, that that his twisting of Scripture absolutely precludes, uh, excludes him from being an actual apostle or a prophet. This is a man, if he were hearing from God the Holy Spirit, God would be saying, knock it off, you're twisting my word. But we continue. I had an encounter with the Lord the other day where the glory of God came upon me. I was shaking. I was weeping. I was watching uh, a vintage sermon from one of the generals who's passed away. And this man used to have such miracles in his ministry. And he was talking about that era. And the Spirit of God began to say to me, where are the wells? Now, there's an amazing story in John 4. Jesus meets... Really, the God, the Holy Spirit, was asking you the question, where are the wells? What? So now he's made God the Holy Spirit his partner in crime with the doctrine that he's going to put forward. 
uh, the woman there uh, at the well, and the woman has been married five times. She's currently living with someone, and Jesus starts ministering to her. But one of the things that caught my attention was verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, this natural water at the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. And so Jesus compares the born-again spirit, the born-again experience to a well. But I believe God wants to raise up even regional wells, places where the power, the glory of God is so strong. In Matthew 9.35, it said... So note, he only referenced the text. And he pointed out something that was truthish, but then said, I believe that God is raising up regional wells. Now let's take a look at the passage in question. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and here's what it says, starting at verse 1. We'll apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, and when we get to the part about Jesus talking about a well springing up from within, we're going to test to see if this is talking about the born-again experience or something else, and if it can be applied regionally. is a weird way of talking, but okay. So John 4, 1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, uh, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, which is near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. By the way, a little bit of historical note here. Uh, this is near the um, modern town in uh, the West Bank of Israel called Nablus. That's where you would find this today. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.'" For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said, Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, now, what is Jesus referring to regarding this living water? We'll see. So the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now the question immediately arises, what water is Christ referring to? And I'm surprised that Ryan Lestrange didn't pick up on the imagery because the imagery here is pointing to the Holy Spirit. And in Scripture, 
the Holy Spirit and water seem to be like closely connected is the best way I could put it. You know, the first appearance of God, the Holy Spirit, is him brooding over the waters of the Tehom, of the deep. And that's like in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1. And then you think of um, you know Noah getting off the ark. Before he got off the ark, you know, you had the dove and, you know, again, hovering over the waters of the flood. And then you have the Holy Spirit appearing with the... Um, with the baptism of Jesus, and yeah, so this idea of a of a well springing up from within that's actually pointing to none other than God, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I'm surprised he didn't say that. So um, weird, because uh, Ryan Lestrange thinks that has something to do with the salvation experience, and then he says that God is a- is asking the question. Where are the regional where are the regional wells, which doesn't actually make any sense in the context of what's going on in John four, but we continue. Jesus went about their cities teaching, preaching, and healing. So he was explaining, he was proclaiming, and there was the supernatural. I remember when I was a young man and God told me to go to Bible college under the tutelage of Dr. Norville Hayes. And I got there to that Bible college. It was not a huge campus. It was not a huge group. But people were there literally from the nations. They came to to drink from that well of faith. There was people that were healed of cancer. Drink from the well of faith. And yet the living water that's welling up is the water of the Holy Spirit, the well of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about a person. It's talking about God, this third person of the Holy Spirit here. People that were healed of lupus, people that were delivered from the most dramatic kind of bondages because somebody dug a well. I remember some years later being in Tulsa. They were delivered because somebody dug a well. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't comport with what Christ said in John 4. So you'll note here the reference now, he's hijacked uh, the words of Christ and are misusing them. This is blasphemy, by the way. This is a breaking of the commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Oklahoma and visiting the campus of Oral Roberts University. And then I went to Rama Bible College, uh, founded by Dr. Kenneth E. Hagan. Which explains why Ryan Lestrange is so heretical. Yep. Kenneth Hagan... Yeah, let's just put it this way. Uh, He went to receive his reward for all of his heresies, false doctrine, false manifestations of the Holy Spirit and deceptions that he engaged in. I went into their prayer and healing school, and people were coming from all over the nations to sit under the teaching of the healing power of God. And I realized this is a well. And the other day, God began to bring these memories. So you, on your own, you just figured out, oh, this is a well. How do you figure? To mean, so I'm stirring hunger in the nations for wells. We've gotten so preoccupied with just building our ministries, building nice churches, and we've got creative pastors and creative thinkers and amazing staging and lighting. But where can you go if you have cancer and you need to find a healing well? Where can you go if there's some kind of horrific? I thought you guys in the uh, NAR and the charismatic church believed that, I mean, you know, you know, healing healing ministries were like a dime a dozen, and, the, and like every single one of your NAR churches is built off on healing ministries in 
one sense or another. Bondage on your life, and you need to find a well of deliverance. I believe God wants to birth in the nations of the world ministries that are not just great and creative and wonderful, all of that is good, but literally wells of power. Well, so God wants to birth wells of power. Well, why doesn't He get on with it then? Why do you make it sound like God is powerless to do these things unless I do something? of deliverance, wells of healing. And so I heard the Lord say, I'm raising up a hunger for wells again. He said there's a tenacity that's going to hit pioneers. So, so God is raising up a hunger for wells again. Wouldn't it be a thirst for wells? I just, I want to back that up because, I mean, you know, Jesus talks about thirst with the woman at Samaria and not hunger. Hunger has to do with food. Thirst has to do with water. Listen again. Wells of deliverance, wells of healing. And so I heard the Lord say, I'm raising up a hunger for wells again. He said, a, a hunger for wells again. Why would God get the metaphor wrong? Yeah, I don't know anybody on planet Earth who hungers for wells. Nope. And in, and in John chapter 4, I, it's thirst. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So Jesus wasn't talking about hunger, and when it talked about the, you know, the, 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 the really the wellspring of the Holy Spirit coming up from within a person, uh, that uh, they would not thirst at all. There was never a hunger for wells. And so the fact that he's claiming that God is the one who doesn't know the difference between hunger and thirst uh-huh. That's more proof that Ryan Lestrange, he's not hearing from God. There's a tenacity that's going to hit pioneers to pioneer places and ministries that are wells of my power. He said... Now, real quick, pioneers, What? what is that? That is NAR code talk for, yeah, apostles. That's what that is. Hear the call to the wells in this hour. Hear the call to these places where the supernatural is in operation. And then God told me he was going to raise up the pioneers and give them teams that would maintain the well. Once you dig a well, you got to keep the pipes clean. You got to keep... Do wells have pipes? So so God's going to you know have people dig up wells after they hunger for them. And and then it's important for them to, you know, keep them from getting stopped up by keeping the pipes clean. You sure God told you this? Pumping that well. If you don't have the right team, it'll die out. And God is raising up teams that are hungry for the power and presence of God. You've got to have that. And then he said there's going to be warfare that hits the well. You've got to be... The so there's going to be warfare that hits the well. Developed in spiritual warfare. I know it'd be easier to just say, well, I don't believe in that. But the reality is sometimes Satan is going to show up and oppose these wells. And then God is going to... Satan's going to show up and oppose the well. Uh-huh. Give strategy. I believe that there are emerging wells. I believe right now God has sent people into key cities, key territories, key regions to dig up a well that is going to function and flow with great power. One of the most famous wells of all time is the healing rooms that was originated by John G. Lake. God had sent John G. Lake back from, from South Africa where there was such a move of the power and the glory of God into the Pacific Northwest. And he established 
church based on a word from God, the healing rooms, a place where people could come with all ailments, all sicknesses, all diseases, and be healed by the power of God. And there were literally hundreds of cases of documented healings in those healing realms, uh, rooms. So much so that the city in which it was based was named the healthiest city in America. May God do it again. May God raise up people with revelation. People with so there was a city named the healthiest city in America, and it's all due to the well that John G. Lake dug. Uh-huh. Color me skeptical. Vision that paid the price and dig a well in cities that even the secular media, even the natural people cannot uh, cannot dilute what is happening. They can't ignore what is happening. I believe God wants to erect healing wells again, deliverance wells, prophetic wells, wells of power. And I believe God is saying that it is an hour for the pioneers to ask themselves, where are the wells? Are you so if you're a pioneer uh, code talk for an apostle? You need to be asking yourself, where are the wells? Uh-huh. Yeah, this is nonsense. And note, that believing that Ryan Lestrange literally is hearing from God, the Holy Spirit, um, the people who follow him, they are despising the written word. I mean, that that's kind of boring stuff. I mean, Ryan Lestrange, these fresh words that he gets and puts out every Monday. Oh, yeah, that that that's where the action's at. That's how they they behave in their minds. Being called just to start something average, or are you being called to dig a well? Is your family being called to go help pioneer a well? Are you being called and attracted and drawn to a place that God is destined to become a well? I feel this is a word in my spirit for this hour. As the yeah, I don't think this is from God at all. I have no reason to believe that God is doing any of this stuff. The glory of God was coming on me uh, just the other day. The Lord said, where are the wells? Where are those places full of power? Full of and no, by shouting, apparently this, this gives this word even more credibility. But all he's done is turn himself into a, I'm a shouty man. Yes, he's a shouty man, folks. He's got a fresh revelation from God, this shouty man. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is just absurdity. And since he twisted God's word along the way, we can be 110% confident that this is not a message from God that we need to listen to or anything else of the sort. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Andrew Womack as well as Brian Houston. Don't want to miss it? We will be right back. No sneaky squid spirit formed against us will prosper. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, 
put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. presents Church Day Select. And that's the bell. Rick Warren and Joe Osteen come charging out of their corners to begin round five, and the punches are already flying. Warren delivers a clean uppercut into Osteen's jaw. Now missing a beat, Osteen returns the favor with a swift jab to Warren's ribcage. Warren staggers a little but lunges and lands a stunning blow to Osteen's right temple. Osteen's light-footedness has allowed him to dodge a majority of Warren's more devastating blows, but I think he may be in trouble now. Warren is coming in for the knock and Oh! Rick Warren has punched Osteen in the face with a wild haymaker, and he's down. Osteen was hit so hard that his mouth guard has flown into the nosebleed section of the audience. Warren really put all his weight into that one. Osteen has begun to stand back up while using the rope for support. He's... he's almost up! He's up! Joel Osteen is still standing, folks! The crowd is going wild! Joel Osteen is now doing something unprecedented. He's... he's smiling! Joel Osteen's white teeth have blinded Rick Warren, and Rick Warren is now lying flat on his back. It's a technical knockout. Rick Warren is down for the count, ladies and gentlemen, making Jolo seem the uncontested winner. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally 
hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people claiming to receive direct revelations from God who twist God's word are actually false prophets, because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can do so by clicking, uh, not clicking, but making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds. Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer. And my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 you round, can round. You keep the largest ways, but it's only just a base. For it's money, money, money makes the world go All right, so we're heading over to the studios of Andrew Womack, and uh, we're going to be listening to his message titled, God Wants You Well. This is actually part of a series that he's doing, and we'll even note that he is selling merchandise along the way, which is part of what he does. And, uh, And then he's going to get into the scriptures and he's going to definitively demonstrate that he doesn't know proper exegesis, and he does not know the biblical languages. And so what's very fascinating is by doing what he does, he ends up revealing 
that his theology is based not upon a proper understanding of the original texts, but upon what he thinks is reasonable and how it should work. And we'll note that even the very context of the passage that he is quoting literally definitively proves him wrong. So without any further ado, here's Andrew Womack and God Wants You Well. Here we go. Welcome to our Thursday's broadcast of The Gospel Truth. Today I'm continuing to talk about how God wants you well. And you just kind of have to ask the question, if God wants me well, then if somebody's sick, how did that happen? Is God powerless to uh, to make somebody well if he wants them well? I mean, is God up in heaven wringing his hands going, I really want to help you. I really do. I, I, I really want you to be well, but there's these things you got to do and stuff. Yeah, this is uh this is a weird theology in and of itself just right off the bat. And I've been dealing with this now for this is near the end of my 5th week. We've got these 6 volumes of DVDs with probably 28 or 30 testimonies of people who've been miraculously healed and I've been playing those. Now, a little bit of a note is uh God definitely can heal today. And uh, sometimes it is God's will for him to heal. No doubt about it. And so you can pray, and you can ask God to heal you. And uh, if he so chooses, he might just do exactly that. But Scripture doesn't teach that it is always God's will to heal. And if you just kind of apply, like, basic logic here, in and here's what I mean. Since... Since the apostles walked the earth, what has been the death rate for every human being, including Christians, on planet earth? Answer, 100%. Everybody dies. And so, and you'll note that oftentimes that as, uh, as we are getting closer to the grave, the, the sheer sign that you are getting closer to the grave is that you experience a chronic disease known as aging. Yeah, that's where your body stops working the way it did. And you know that Andrew Womack, for all of his talk that God wants God wants you well, um, he looks like an old fellow. I mean, his hair's all gray, and he doesn't look like uh, that if he played a pickup game of basketball with 20-year-olds that he'd be able to smoke them. You know, like, like not even close. And so, you know, Andrew Womack, for all this talk about God wants you well, this is a guy who, when you compare his before and after photos, before when he was 20, and now when he's, what, he looks like he's in his 70s, you know, this is a fellow who's clearly getting old. And so one of the things we say here at Fighting for the Faith is never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. Uh Uh-huh, yep. And don't trust a faith healer, a guy who says God wants you well, who is aging. Mm-hmm. If God wants you well, then you're going to stay perpetually 20 or 18. You, you kind of get the idea. So, I mean, just just applying like basic duh to this this problem, you can see that uh, Andrew Womack is not not telling us the truth. And again, you know, if, if God wants us all well and Christians to always be well, then why why aren't we all already well? 
Plus, we have this book on God Wants You Well. I've got it on CD, DVD. I've got a. I'd like to see him like teach this message to Johnny Erickson Tata, you know, who spent literally her entire adult life as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. Study guide, and we've got this USB that has uh, over a dozen of my teachings that go along with healing. Mm. On the authority of the believer, spirit, soul, and body, how to receive God's best, and on and on and on it goes. And we've just got a wealth of information. I've said this many times, but I really want to encourage you that I believe if you were to get this entire healing package. Yeah, you, you got to get the package, though. See, you can't, you can't just read your Bible on your own and learn this. Why not? I mean, I, I own a Bible. I own several Bibles. And, and you know, the, the Internet has, like, free Bibles online. You go to BibleGateway.com. You can look at all kinds of translations and paraphrase of the Bible for free. Why can't somebody just read the Bible and come to these conclusions regarding the doctrines that uh, Andrew Womack is teaching? Hmm? And if you were to study it and let this soak in on the inside of you, it's going to be very, very hard for you to stay sick if you get all of this. And, you know, on our program yesterday... Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, as a pastor, there are people that I care for who they're shut-ins, you know, and I visit them regularly to pray with them, to bring the Word to them, to bring the Lord's Supper to them. And, you know... They're clearly heading towards the grave. In fact, one one gal that uh, I, I'm ministering to has a very, very serious illness and was just diagnosed a couple of years ago. And I'll be blunt, is that um, it, it, I would be shocked if she makes it into the, into the year 2019. That's how severe this illness is. And yet, when I visit her, I point her to the promises of Christ— for the forgiveness of our sins, and the hope that we have in the resurrection. Because ultimately, all of our prayers as Christians, Lord, heal me, are answered with a yes, but not in this lifetime. They are answered in a yes on the day when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, and the dead in Christ rise. And so we, our hope is in the resurrection. But isn't it fascinating what uh, you know that you know if if this was really a biblical teaching how come Christianity hasn't taught this for its entire 2000 year history until the word of faith televangelist showed up in the United States mm-hmm. and um and if and why do I need to buy Andrew Womack's package in order for this to uh, for me to be taught this okay, we played the testimony of Julianne Hartman who spent over 300,000 dollars on medication and was not getting better, was getting worse. But then she got these materials free, and she began to just saturate. Well, so there you go. I mean, she 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 was spent three hundred thousand dollars, and she just purchased Andrew Womack's thing, and then blammo! I mean, the, you can't you can't deny a testimony. Hmm. Herself in the Word of God, and it produced total healing. And today, she is completely. Pain-free, and she, I forget the exact length of time. Praise Andrew Womack. Yeah, I think that was appropriate. But I think over a decade, it was a long period of time. She had just nearly been housebound, sidelined. 
She used to be very active, and yet she got healed just through the Word of God. I didn't lay hands on her. I'm not saying that you can't get healed by having somebody else lay hands on you, but I think that that's restrictive in a way. I'm not always going to be there with you, but the Word... I'm not going to always be there with you. Do you think you're Jesus Christ? I mean, Christ himself literally said that I, you will not always have me with you. But, oh, man, I mean, how, are we, how is the church to make it without Andrew Womack? And notice he's saying it trying to sound humble, but, oh, man always be there with you. God will always be with you. And it says in Psalms 107.20 that he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from all their destructions. In the eighth chapter... Yeah, that's out of context. And it doesn't. that does not mean that God always wills to heal people. After the book of Matthew, Jesus said it was the greatest faith he had ever seen. This centurion who said, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now, no, in Matthew 8, he's quoting, again, quoting this out of context. Did the Roman centurion speak the word and then his servant was healed? Nope. It was Christ. Jesus Christ, Son of God in human flesh. And you'll note then that, you know, seriously, I, I just best way to put it is, is that when it comes to signs, wonders, and miracles, <laughs> yeah, nobody even comes in a close second to Jesus. Now, Moses is up there, but the, the miracles and signs and wonders that Christ did all prove that he is who he claimed to be, none other than God the Son in human flesh. And so when you get to where you can just receive healing through the Word, that's all that you need. And so we're talking about, well, why isn't everybody healed then if it's God's will? So he Yeah, why not? Why isn't everybody healed if it's God's will? I mean, that's my question. And watch his answer, because where he goes with this is, again, revealing, fascinating in a bad way. There's an instance in the 17th chapter of Matthew where Jesus' disciples could not cast the devil out of a boy who was having problems with things like epileptic seizures. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus rebuked them, showing that it was his will. They should have been able to do this. Likewise, Jesus... He rebuked them that sh they should have been able to do this. Okay. ...wants us to be able to minister. He now, we're going we're gonna to take a look at the text in question from Matthew 17, and then we're going to add in... Um, a cross-reference, because remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. That helps us out a little bit. So if you want to open up to Matthew 17, as well as Mark chapter 9, we'll take a look there to see what uh, how Mark's gospel handles this account. Today, we should not accept the powerlessness that we see oh. in the average church and in the average Christian today. Yeah, see, those of you who believe that it's not always God's will to heal... Yeah, you just go to a church that, yeah, that's into powerlessness. Uh-huh. That's just a completely, well, false straw man. And so after, uh, in verse 18, this is Matthew seventeen eighteen. Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. So Jesus did what his disciples were unable to do, not because he hadn't empowered them, but because they just failed in this area. And so it says in verse 19, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? 
Now remember in Now note he's reading from the King James here and he'll explain why in a minute. Matthew chapter 10 he had already given the disciples power and authority over all sickness and over all disease and then he told them to go heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. They came back and they said, "Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name." So they had already cast demons out of people. They had already seen people heal. Now, it's important that you put that together because these weren't people who had never done this before. They had used the name of Jesus. They had cast out demons. They had seen people heal. But this time they did the same thing that had worked in previous times, and this time it didn't work. Now, that is important. Mm-hmm. Again, I say that people who don't believe in healing, they don't have this perplexity. They just say, well, you know, this is... Now, wait a second here. You know, unless you're some kind of a liberal who doesn't who doesn't believe that miracles are possible at all, then you as a Christian believe that God can heal, but that it's not always his will to do so. So, again, I clearly God, you know, he... It, Andrew Womack hasn't activated his faith to keep himself from aging. Yeah, he's looking pretty old there. Now, we'll, we'll do a little bit of work in the biblical text real quick here. And I'm going to duplicate this tab because I want to get into Matthew chapter 10. See if I can find this uh, real quick here. Um, yeah, the commissioning here. Um, Jesus, uh, Matthew 10, 5, Jesus sent out instructions. Okay, so here we go. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. You'll note here, Matthew 10 makes it clear that the authority to work in these signs and wonders that they were working in was not given to Christianity, to Christians. They were given specifically to the Twelve, to the Apostles. In fact, this then becomes what is known as the signs of the Apostles. And let me show you this in uh, in. Uh, is it Second Corinthians, two Corinthians twelve, I believe. Uh, Corinthians twelve, twelve. Yeah, here it is. The apostle Paul writing against the um, the so-called super apostles. He he says um, he says I have been a fool. Second Corinthians twelve eleven. I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the apostle Paul, you know, you, you think of the passage in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul literally could like send a napkin to somebody and uh, they could be healed. And you think of Peter, that even his shadow would fall on somebody and they would be healed. So these signs, you know, this ability to operate in these sign, you know, sign gifts was not given to Christianity as a whole. It was given specifically to the apostles. And that's exactly what Matthew 10 says, that Jesus gave the 12 this authority. He did not give this authority to 
the church at large. And so then when you think by the time, you know, Paul writes his letter to Timothy and says, you know, you know, because of your frequent stomach ailments, drink a little bit of wine. Okay. You know, a medicinal use of wine. And you'll note then the assumption is, is that, well, you know, healing, <laughs> you know, wasn't a, an assumed thing that should be happening. In fact, let me show you the text because I think it's probably a good idea that you uh, that you see it. And so let me uh, let me go to the epistles in particular. And oh yeah, First Timothy chapter five is what we're looking for. And by the way, I get a lot of questions about you know uh, on YouTube about what software I am using for this uh, for uh, show the Bible. And the name of it is Accordance, A-C-C-O-R-D-A-N-C-E. You can find it at accordancebible.com. And uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 5, and specifically verse 23, and you'll note here that, uh, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who literally could operate in signs and wonders and heal people, and in the back end of the, the book of Acts, I mean, he heals, uh, you know, someone on Malta of dysentery. I mean, this is a guy who clearly had you know, the signs of the apostles. And uh, so he says this to uh, to young Pastor Timothy, who was a pastor at, of one of the congregations in the city of Ephesus. He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Note here that uh, Paul didn't chastise, uh, didn't chastise Timothy and say, why are you sick? You need to activate your faith and receive your healing because God always wills for you to be healed. Doesn't do that at all. So just, I wanted to do a little bit of work there so you can kind of see where this, you know, what the Bible does teach in this regard. But we come back to Andrew Womack. The way it is, God doesn't heal. This is part of being human and you have to suffer. But people who believe in healing, in a way, they have the opportunity to be more perplexed than people who don't believe in healing. Because the people who don't believe in healing... Now notice, he's not making a biblical argument here. Now we're just getting, you know, the musings of Andrew Womack's own mind. They're shooting at nothing and hitting it every time. Whatever happens, it must have been God's will. That's a chicken's way to live. Forgive me for being blunt, but... What are you? Chicken! It, it, what is this? The uh, the back to the future argument? You know, you know, hey McFly! You know, it's this this is nonsense. This is not an argument. And you're shooting at nothing. You hit it every time. You can't miss when you're shooting at nothing. But if you are aiming at a target, what happens if you miss? Why did you miss? You have questions like this. So they said, why couldn't we cast him out? And look at this in verse 20. It says, Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Now, he's quoting the King James, and we'll take a look at the Greek behind this in a minute. And watch what he does here, because this shows he's not a trained exegete. He's not a theologian in the, in the truest sense. He's actually kind of a hack, but let's watch what he does here. Now, this is really important. Mm. And I don't mean to attack any other translation. I am not one of these King James only guys. Now, I use the King James because I believe it's awesome. It's what I grew up on. It has depth to it. 
that you don't get with some of the modern translations. They just take the surface meaning and put it in there and you, and you can't plumb the depth. You can't read the same scripture over a thousand times and get something new every time because it's just the surface level of what's being said. I love the King James. I am... But yeah, by the way, I have a degree in uh, biblical languages. Yeah, that's my pre-seminary degree. So, uh, yeah, I'm trained in, in biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. I'm not a King James only guy. I am not against all other translations, but, but I just have to mention this, that if you're reading the NIV, the NIV says it's because of your little faith. And that is not what this is talking about. Matter yeah, notice how emphatic. This is not what this is talking about, but it actually is. Let me show you real quick here. So we are in Matthew 17. Now, over on this tab, let me go ahead and get Mark 9 up and rolling so it's ready for us. And uh, we'll take a look here at, uh, again, Matthew 17, and we're going to take a look at the text itself. So um, Jesus and Peter, James, and John had just gone up the Mount of Transfiguration, and this is the place where Jesus was transfigured uh, you know, before them, and then Moses and Elijah show up. And so here's what it says. So when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, "'Lord, have mercy on my son,' for he has seizures and suffers terribly. Often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And now I'm reading, by the way, the ESV, and we'll show you the Greek behind this in just a second. So he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith uh, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, for, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now a little bit of a note here. So Jesus says, because of your little faith. Now, Andrew Womack is taking issue with that and saying it can't be that. It must be their unbelief. And he's comparing the King James to the NIV. The ESV uses the same translation, but here's the thing. The Greek here actually says little faith. That's literally what this word means. So let me show you the word. The uh, The word here is uh, oligop. Uh, oligopistion, that's the uh, that's how it appears here and it comes it's actually in its uh, lexical form is oligopistia and it literally means smallness of faith um yeah pistion faith uh, oligop uh, oligopo is smallness the little littleness of faith and uh, i'll show it to you in uh, the lexicon here Elegapistia, here it's the one in red. And literally, littleness or poverty of faith. That's what it means. And so you'll note then, the Greek text itself doesn't say because of unbelief. It says because of oligapistia, because of the smallness of your faith. And then he says, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So by him just saying, well, I prefer the 
King James in this particular case. And I know that this has nothing to do with smallness of faith. Uh, and based on what is he saying that? What sounds reasonable to him? Not actual exegesis or an ability to uh, work in the original languages. Now, I wanted to show you the uh, the cross-reference here in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to note that uh, there's a, there, that the fuller uh, expanded version, when you take two, the two Gospels and kind of put them together, you can kind of see the bigger picture. Uh, because uh, Mar- Matthew has a particular emphasis, Mark has a particular emphasis, and you take the details of both and you get the fuller picture of what happened. So uh, in so Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowds, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And so he asked, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and it becomes ridges. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And so Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately he convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, Well, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, Well, from childhood it's often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, well, if you can, well, all things are possible for the one who believes. So immediately the father uh, cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, well, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Mm-hmm. And some some manuscripts literally say prayer and fasting. So now kind of put it all together. Because of your little faith, and in this particular case, their their smallness of faith should have driven them to their knees in prayer because this particular kind of demon only comes out by prayer. Yeah, so, yeah, kind of fascinating. Putting putting all together here. So Andrew Womack, though, uh, we'll go back to his argument, be his, his, him denying this can't be smallness of faith. It can't be littleness of faith. Yeah, that's exactly what the Greek text says. In fact, if you were to go on in the rest of this verse, in verse 20, it says, Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you should say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it should remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. The rest of this verse goes on to make the point that if your faith is as small as a grain of mustard seed, that's enough to see a mountain cast into the sea. The whole point that he's making is you don't need big faith. If your faith is just this tiny, it's enough to accomplish whatever it is that you need. So, Yeah, but see, the thing is, is that the text itself literally <laughs> says oligopistion um, because of the smallness of your faith. So clearly... 
their faith wasn't as big as the grain of a mustard seed. Uh-huh. So um, <laughs> his argument is invalid because he's not referencing the original languages. He doesn't know his Bible. He's just preferring one over the other. And he's basically saying, well, this can't possibly be because this doesn't compute with my reason. Yeah, your reason is not the, de- the, you know, the determinant as far as what is true and, un- and not true in God's word. And so um, what Andrew Womack has done here, n- not intentionally, but actually quite definitively, though, demonstrated that he's not really one who's properly studied and done what is necessary to be a public teacher of God's word. He's literally tripped up here and showed that he's not somebody who understands how the biblical languages work, and he's just preferring one over the other, because one thing fits his false theology, and the other runs against his false theology, and so his false theology, is in, based upon his reason, is now in the driver's seat determining what is true in Scripture as opposed to what is untrue in Scripture, and it's rather than his mind being conformed to what God's Word actually says. He's in error because he doesn't know the Word of God, and he doesn't know how to reference the original languages, and he's just definitively proven he makes his decisions based upon what he believes, not what the Word says. And that's one of the hallmarks of a false teacher. When their theology runs against what God's Word says, and they will make arguments based upon their reason, yeah, you're dealing with somebody who's twisting Scripture there. Now, I know that was probably subtle and kind of, you know, dealing with a little bit of minutia, but it's actually quite telling if you've been trained to know what to look for. That's why I shared it with you. Moving along. Praise the Lord. Yep, time for a Hillsong update. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. Praise the Lord, he's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs. And soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest. He'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD. Just forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, Lenny and Mula. Solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches. Thanks to all you stupid That's right. Praise the Lord and pass the uh, the tithing bucket. All right, so we're heading over to uh, Hillsong in Sydney, Australia, and we're going to listen to uh, the opening portion of Brian Houston's sermon titled Kings and Queens, Paupers to Princes. 
And note that he's doing something really squirrely here uh, with <clears throat> the account of Jesus saying that, uh, uh, you know, tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the way he ends up applying it after properly identifying it, because he'll do that, is just, wow, Is that's the best way I can put it. So let's get to it. Here's Brian Houston, kings and queens, paupers to princes. Here we go. You say amen across the church. You guys can be seated. From paupers to princes. I want to start by talking about Israel and specifically Jerusalem and specifically the dome on the rock and the temple mount. Mm -hmm. Because as Christians, you go to Israel and it's awesome. And you go to Jerusalem and it's so significant. And where Jesus walked and talked and his disciples and so much Bible history throughout the entire scriptures. But there's something that's vexing. (laughs) Well, actually, all the history in the Bible is... Bible history. Yeah, that's how that works. For Christians. And that is. Now, let me back this up. Okay, because he's, he's, apparently there's a quandary. If you've been to the Holy Land, and I haven't. I travel there using other people's vacation photos. But uh, he, he's going to point to a particular feature of the Temple Mount area complex in Jerusalem that he says is a little bit puzzling for Christians, but uh, let me back it up 10 seconds so we can hear it in context. And his disciples and so much Bible history throughout the entire scriptures. But there's something that's vexing for Christians. Mm. And that is, on the temple ruins, right on the southern steps where Jesus and all of his contemporaries would have walked into worship in the temple. Okay, so he's referencing the fact that south end of the temple complex, that what was the temple lies in a huge heap of rubble off to the side of the temple. The Romans literally, they like took the temple and scraped it off the temple mount. That's exactly what they did in 70 AD. And so what was the temple in Jesus' time yeah, it, it it just you know boulders and rocks and stones and it's a heap of of ruins. That's all that's there, right? And apparently, this is vexing for Christians. It's never vexed me, and I've known about the existence of that for a long time. But okay, it's a shrine, the dome on the rock, and on the Temple Mount, also significant for Christians, sits a mosque. I don't know about you, but you kind of look at that and I look at all the promise of the scripture and there's a whole lot of theology about that side and about Jesus' second coming, but I don't even want to talk about that. But I do want to talk about what Jesus said about a temple that is torn down. And it's in John chapter 2, verse 19 and 21. It says, Jesus said, 219, okay, let's take a look at it real quick before he gets to it and make sure we have a proper understanding of what's going on there. So John chapter 2, and he's starting at verse 19. Um, and let's 
let's just add a little bit of context. So three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, context. This is a great story, by the way. And so this will help us understand the timing. Here's what it says. Uh, John 2.13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, he would have been required to do so, by the way. Uh, God's uh, The Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, requires the men of Israel to appear before God three times a year. Yeah, and Passover is one of them, so he has to go to uh, Jerusalem. So in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, a little bit of a note here. Jesus is acting like he owns the place. And when it comes to the temple of God, yeah, you, you better have, you better be God himself in order to, uh, to pull this off. So immediately the Jews are zooming in on this because their money is being, you know, their bottom line is being impacted here because they had set up this, you know, getting into the temple complex. You couldn't use Roman money to, you know, to make offerings and things like that. So you had to change your money into shekels. You know, if you had denarii, they had to be turned into shekels. And, of course, they were always happy to, you know, sell you, you know, spotless lambs and things like that for sacrifices and stuff, you know, at a at a premium, of course. But uh, so, you know, so their bottom line's now being impacted by what Jesus did. So John 2.18, so the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Which, by the way, is not necessarily a bad question. Because when God sent Moses to the people of Israel, you know, Moses literally said, what if they don't believe that you sent me? What do I do? And so God gave him his staff and gave him some miracles to perform some signs to prove that God himself had sent him. So they're going to demand a sign here. You're acting like you own the place. This is the temple. This is the house of God. You better show us some signs here to prove that you are, that you have the authority to do this stuff. So Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And by the way, <laughs> Jesus, that's the exact sign that he gave. He actually gave them the sign. And so, but it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus did give them a sign that he had the authority to cast out these money changers, and that sign was his resurrection from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So keep that in mind. We've now, we now know what's going on in this text. Let's see what Brian Houston's going to do with it. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That was his promise. That was declaration. You pull the temple down. I'll rebuild it in three days. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you say you're going to raise it up in three days. I do find it interesting that Brian Houston didn't read the, the first part about, about 
casting out the money changers and stuff. <clears throat> I wonder if that was on purpose. Anyway. And this is where it changes. He was speaking of the temple of his own body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I wonder if sometimes we have our eyes on the wrong temple. Jesus. Okay, okay. Now he's going to correctly identify that Jesus was talking about his physical body. But then no sooner is he going to get that out than he's going to take this temple, you know, metaphor and stretch it to include things that it don't include. Watch what he does here. He said, I can, you pull the temple down, you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the death of Jesus, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. They destroyed, crucified the temple. But three days later, he rose again. Do you know? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, see, he got that part right. Everything about the gospel message is about raising and lifting and resurrecting and building. He takes... You see, there's where... There's where... (laughs) This is like the heresy two-step right there. He he threw down the right text and rightly identified it was about Jesus. But then, you know, he just sashayed over to the right and then sashayed over to... Yeah, he's he's doing some sashaying here. And how is he doing it? Because now what he's done is he's taken Jesus' physical resurrection and made it into something abstract and made an assertion, well, the kingdom is all about raising dead things and stuff. Listen to what he's saying here. And again, this is the heresy two-step that we see going on here. This is closely related to, by the way, the Macarena, but listen again. They destroyed, crucified the temple, but three days later, he rose again. Do you know, everything about the gospel message is about raising and lifting and resurrecting and building. About raising and lifting and resurrecting and building. What? What? Takes paupers and he makes them princes. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. We're told the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. The same spirit. Well, yeah, that's true. That rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We are resurrection people. We are life-giving people. We are in... What do you mean we're life-giving people? What am I supposed to be resurrecting here? Bold in the building of other people. Now listen, God... Bold in the building of other people? Huh? Always lifts the lives of people. And I believe that God lifts the lives of those who lift the lives of others. So God lifts the lives of those who lifts the lives of others, you know, because Jesus said, tear down this, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. How do you figure? (laughs) So now, now all of a sudden we're not talking about Jesus no more. I think we're talking about us and we're talking about us in a weird kind of narcissistic way. Oh, but it gets better. God 
always lifts the lives of those who are beat up or are broken down. He lifts the plight of the poor. And you know, the Bible says that many, many, many times over. Let me share just a few of them with you as we get started. In Psalm 107, verse 41, this is what the Word of God says there. He, yet He sits the poor on high. What? Does he squash them down? Does he crush them? Does he keep them depressed? Does he keep them impoverished? He's so you'll note apparently because Jesus rose from the grave, Christians don't experience poverty. Say that to the millions of believers who live in third world countries. Wow. I mean, because Psalm 107.41 is not a promise that God's going to make you wealthy. It's the poor on high. I love this line, far from affliction. He removes them far from their afflictors and from their affliction, from their trouble and from their challenge and makes their families like a flock. Psalm 113, it's a promise to the poor and about becoming princes. Verses 7 and verse 8, I love these verses. He raises. What does he do? He he raises the poor out of the dust and lifts. So he, he's a prosperity preacher here. You know why you get to be rich and not poor? Because Jesus rose from the grave. So there. <laughs> Apparently that's in the here and the now. The needy out of the ash heap. He raises, he lifts. It's a theme right through scripture. He raises and he lifts. He fills us with resurrection life. He raises the poor. So resurrection life is being wealthy. No. From the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his People. He lifts people to be princes. So, I mean, everybody knows princes are wealthy, you know. So, you, you, oh man, crown jewels are coming your way, folks. You know why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. Yeah, uh, Brian Houston is a fellow who believes in and teaches the word of faith heresy, and he is a prosperity preacher. And, uh, of course, his life, as wealthy as he is, is held up as the example, as the testimonial that all this theology is true. Boy, that was quite the twisting of Scripture there, going from the resurrection to now me being wealthy and royalty. Who knew? So, yeah, Brian Houston, avoid him like the plague, because his theology is that. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon by John Cameron entitled Here to Make a Difference. And boy, does this thing... Twist God's word up like a pretzel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death 
of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now, at Pyra Christian Media, have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. The bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We're heading over to Arise Church down in NZ, New Zealand. John Cameron presiding. The name of the message is Here to Make a Difference. And we're going to note that John Cameron is adding all kinds of stuff into the biblical text. And by doing so, what he's ending up doing 
is creating an alternative narrative. A narrative that is not in Scripture, cannot properly be inferred using sound biblical exegesis. And his new narrative then changes the whole meaning and focus of the biblical narratives that he's preaching from. To foc- Rather than focusing on Christ, which is what they do, he's now going to focus us on ourselves. And it's really, really bad. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's John Cameron, and here to make a difference. All right, so here we go. There's the book, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9 and verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are here in a remote place. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for this whole crowd. And about 5,000 men were there, by the way, plus women, plus children. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves of bread and two fish and looking up to heaven. Anybody grateful that you don't have to look at what you've got, but you can look up to heaven? He gave... Uh, uh, what? Thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They all ate. They all ate. And weren't hungry. Anybody hate going to a house where you get a meal, but you're still hungry at the end of it? They all ate, and they were satisfied. Somebody shout, Amen. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. What an amazing passage of scripture. In the reading that we have tonight, Jesus' disciples are returning from their first ever ministry trip. He has just anointed the 12 apostles in the chapter before it. And then he has sent them out. He's been modeling ministry, been showing them what to do. And he's taking things to another level. He's saying, hey, listen, this is what I've done. I've gone into towns. I've gone into villages. I preached the sermons. I healed the sick. I drove out the demons. And what I've been doing for the last two years, it's now your turn to do it. And he sent these disciples out. And by the way, this is what discipleship is all about. You watch me, you do with me. Now you do without me. And that's exactly what God's aim is for us. If you're a believer in this room, I want you to understand. God wants you to watch. God wants you to participate. Then God wants you to do it without Him. And without the other person that's been ahead of you. And that's that's what we're all about here at Arise, is replicating disciples. He sent these apostles out, these newly minted, freshly anointed apostles. And He said, go out and I want you to go to towns. Go to villages, preach the good news. Freshly minted, newly anointed. I just looked through uh, Luke 8. I 
didn't quite see where Jesus freshly anointed them. You said it was in the previous chapter. Kingdom, heal every disease and cast out demons. Anybody grateful that God takes a risk on a new generation? I mean, after this, after this, Peter still cut off some dude's ear in the garden. After this, one of these 12 betrayed Jesus for, for coins. I mean, that's literally the position of maturity that these cats are in. And Jesus said, you've got authority. You can cast out demons, heal the sick and have a crack. And God will trust you, friends. Are you grateful for that? God will trust. This is about God trusting you. What? By the way, the feeding of the 5,000, major, major miracle. It's a major sign that reveals who Christ is. And this is where knowing your cross-references is very helpful. So the Gospel of John chapter 6 is where you want to go here. And uh, this is where uh, where Jesus actually performed this exact same miracle. And this is so John's account of it helps fill out our understanding of what happened. Um, I'll pick up at John chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed to those who were seated, and so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the uh, five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign, yeah, the sign here is referring to the miracle, that, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Yeah, you'll know this is a miraculous feeding of a bunch of Israelites in the wilderness uh, that harkens back to the wilderness wanderings of uh, the children of Israel and God miraculously feeding them in the wilderness, and they immediately knew who Jesus was. This miracle showed them who he was. And so, uh, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So keep that in mind. I mean, this particular miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, aside from Christ's resurrection, this is the only other miracle that appears in all four Gospels. And John makes it explicitly clear that this is the miracle that they that clued the people of Israel in on who Jesus was. They went out on their first ever trip, and the Bible tells us that this is the story of when they came back. And no doubt, when these disciples return to Jesus, they are full with a whole bunch of stories. I mean, they've got stuff to tell. Depending on their personality, I'm sure it depended how they saw what happened. John comes back and just said, Jesus, there were people, everybody, everywhere, and they all just needed love. And we got to love. Yeah. Now note here, John Cameron now is spinning his own narrative. He's adding to the word of God. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what he's doing. And his narrative isn't focusing on who Jesus is. His narrative is focusing in on the disciples in such a way that he can then make it about himself and about you and me, which is not why this miracle was recorded. 
on a whole lot of people. That's John's ethos. Peter came back and he said, I prayed for this guy and his arm grew back. It wasn't there, but it grew back. We had power, Jesus, and it was amazing. We've got, we've got, you know, Matthew comes back and he says to Jesus, we had 17 miracles, 312 salvations. If you read Matthew's gospel, he just loves his stats. Judas comes back, Judas comes back and he said, well, you know, we had some amazing offerings, but I don't think collectively they offset how much we normally get from your crusades. Thomas comes back and Thomas says, you know, I prayed for this guy, Jesus, and he was completely healed. I think he was healed. Actually, I'm not that sure about it at all. And the disciples are swapping stories amongst themselves. And you know how young guys go. You know, one guy's well, yeah, well, I prayed for this guy and his eyes were open. That's nothing. I prayed for this guy and his legs grew back and his dog's eyes were open. I mean, they're swapping stories amongst themselves. And I'm sure it's just one big celebration. Anybody who's ever done ministry, anybody who's ever served, for instance, at a RISE conference for the entire weekend would know that when you finish that project, when you get to the end of your big season, you're... Yeah, notice now we're talking about a RISE church and and a RISE conference. Had to throw that in there. Uh Uh-huh. Who's he really preaching about? Not Jesus. I can tell you that. You're, 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 you're wired, you're thankful, you can't believe that God has moved, but you're also exhausted and emotionally vulnerable. And when these disciples came back from this missions report, remember this is pre-Twitter, pre-Instagram, pre-news you know, news feeds on your iPhone, and they brought back with them, we know from reading another gospel, that they brought back with them news to Jesus That John the Baptist, who has been their partner in ministry, their sole friend in the cause of Christ, the only person saying good things about Jesus other than the ministry team of Jesus. And John the Baptist, their friend, Jesus' cousin, their partner in ministry has been beheaded and is now dead. And when news comes back to Jesus and the disciples of what has taken place, they are not only excited about the ministry, but they are also gutted. They're they're mourning. Their buddy, their friend is dead. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you know what? We need to go away. We need to process our grief. We need to reflect. We need to get fresh. He said, we've got to take some... Yeah, Jesus didn't say any of those things. You're adding to the biblical text. Time out, let's go to Bethesda. And when they, when they went... Bethsaida. ...to go to this town, I'm sure the disciples were grieving, and I'm sure they were gutted, but I'm sure a little bit of them was pretty pumped. They're thinking to themselves, man, let's go away. Let's, let's get to this holiday place. Let's go to the small town where people relax. Let's get some hydroslides going. Um... You know, let's see. No text says this either. Notice, John Cameron is literally spinning out his own narrative. Burgers, you know what I mean? Like, no one's counting calories on holiday. Somebody say amen. You know, we're gonna eat. We're gonna eat, and we're gonna eat big. You know, we're gonna we're gonna relax. It's a theme to tonight's sermon. It's all about food. Maybe because I'm hungry right now. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, "Man, this is gonna be awesome." They set off. We've got just us, just Jesus. No big crowds. 
they arrive at Bethesda, and when they get there, they grab some food. Bethsaida. Something, and they head out into the countryside, and they sit down, and they're just chilling out. And as they're chilling out, they look over in the horizon, and they can see some movement. And they're looking, and one of the disciples says to the others, I, I can see some people over there. And they're like, oh, okay, all right. Somebody found us. That's all right. That's all right. And as they're watching these people walk down the road, they can see others in the distance behind them. Oh, praise God, you know. And as they keep looking, there's still more and there's still more. And it begins to dawn on these disciples that the crowds have found them. Well, now the chatter begins. Oh no, here we go again. It's always about them, isn't it? These people just can't leave us alone. It's all about their blind. The disciples did not say any of this. And their leprosy. <laughs> When's it going to be about us for a moment? You know? And then as the crowds are getting close, Jesus stands to his feet. And they're like, oh no, what's Jesus going to do? And Jesus welcomes the crowds and they're like, oh, that's good. He's got to be nice to people. That's always important. Hopefully he's now going to tell them all to get back where they came from and give us our little R&R time. And as they're waiting, you can imagine the, the kind of pregnant pause. And you can imagine the disciples as Jesus says, hello, everybody, bless you. And then as he launches into a sermon, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. The disciples are like, no. Jesus preaches for hours. This is not good. And he's going to pray for people. He always prays for people. Whenever he preaches, he always prays for people. This is going to take forever. And so the disciples exercise the most ancient form of resistance, passive resistance. It's not, they wouldn't be bold enough to say, Jesus is a terrible idea. They're just not going to help in any way. So these disciples, these are... So you're accusing the disciples of engaging in passive resistance. No text says this at all. Been driving out demons and healing the sick and now sitting off in a huff in the corner while Jesus spends the rest of that day ministering to the broken people who've wandered out into the wilderness. And at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, in late afternoon, the Bible tells us that the 12, if you read your Bible carefully, you will notice the scripture says that the 12, all of them came as one man. They've talked amongst themselves. They've garnished a strategy. They've, they've developed a plan. They're like, you know, how are we going to get rid of these people? That's what their conversation point has been. How are we going to get... No text says that they were scheming on how to figure out how to get rid of the people. Wow. It's not about them. It's about us now. How can we get this burden off our shoulders? How can we get, how can we get a little bit of relaxation time to ourselves? And one of them says to the other, let's point out to Jesus how far away they are from food and lodging. Let's, let's put the problem of, of maintaining their physical needs up to Jesus and show him that we've got to get rid of them. That will work. That will work. All right. Who's going to talk? Peter. Peter always talks. So they walk over to Jesus as one man and their request of Jesus, their, their advice, they've been so bold as to make a strategy suggestion to Jesus. Let's send these crowds away because we love them, Jesus. I mean, we love them. And because we love them, let's let them go back 
to where they came from so that they can find some food. And you know, it's going to be cold tonight. Let's help them to find somewhere to sleep before the sun sets because we care about them, Jesus. We, we care about, our motive is so pure and we, it's all for God and for people. And so let's send them away so that they can find something to eat. And can you imagine their frustration? Yeah, imagine. Yeah, there's a lot of imagination in this telling of the story. No fidelity to actually what the biblical text says. By the way, the Bible-twisting technique, this is called eisegesis, reading things into the biblical text that are not there. Let me look at Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 10, so that we can see what's going on here. Um in fact, let me uh, let me back up into Luke nine verse seven, and uh, and we will go from there. Nine seven. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said that John had been raised from the dead by some that uh, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, John, whom I beheaded. Uh, who is who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's our little interlude, Luke nine ten. So on the return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So you're going to note, it's late in the day. They're in the middle of nowhere. This is not some passive-aggressive thing that's going on here. This is legitimate, like, hey, Jesus, it's really getting late. And, you know, these people are going to faint on the way. That's kind of what's going on here. So he said to them, well, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there are about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So you'll note that, you know, this is a pretty straightforward narrative. And the Gospel of John tells us how the Jews reacted, how they were going to make Jesus king by force, because this miracle, this sign proved to them who he really was. And I don't know what John Cameron's talking about, but he's just adding all kinds of stuff to the biblical text that ain't even there. When Jesus responds and with these simple words, he says, you give them something to eat. Did you see that one coming? I did not see. No, I did not see. Anybody got a good reply to that? Up pops Judas. is going financial. He's like, Jesus, how are we going to pay for that? I mean, how are we going to pay for that? I mean, if we buy everybody here a fillet of fish combo, 
which I tried to Google the price for last night because I haven't bought one in so long. I haven't been to McDonald's in so many years. Anyway, if I, we buy them all a fillet of fish combo, then that's going to cost thousands of dollars a year's wages. This is not going to work. And Jesus just will, he sticks to his guns. He just says, no, you give them something to eat. You- no, he doesn't just stick to his guns. He only said that once. Why do you have Jesus saying it twice? You give them something to eat. And the disciples said, well, all we've got is five loaves of bread and two fish. It's 5,000 men plus women plus children. There are 12,000 people here minimum. And Jesus said, have everybody in this crowd sit down in groups of about 50 people each. The disciples are like, sit down, you moaners, you know, shut up, sit down. (laughs) Then the Bible says that Jesus takes the food that is there. He takes those five loaves of bread. He takes those two fish. He looks up towards heaven. And are you grateful for a God that no matter what you've got, if you break it for the need of humanity, he'll meet you there. What? That's not the point of that text. Wow. And uh, we will again note that uh, this miracle, according to John's gospel, is the one that showed everybody who Jesus was. Then no matter how little you feel you have on offer, that if you break it and pour it out, if you won't remain whole, but if you'll be broken for the needs of a community, if you care. What are you talking about? He's really going on on here. And none of what he's saying is actually even biblical, like not even close. And it's a bizarre twisting of this text. About the people that are around you, that God can do the most amazing things with what we simply have on offer for him. Come on, if you are grateful for that, give God some praise for a second. And Jesus looks, he looks towards heaven and he breaks the loaf and he breaks the fish and he hands it to the disciples and he says, go out there and offer this to the people. And as bits of the loaf get broken, the loaf doesn't seem to get smaller. As, as bits of the problem get offered to the people, it doesn't seem to reduce in size. Imagine their incredulity as they're wandering from group of 50 to group of 50, and they're handing out portions of the bread and portions of the fish, and everybody's taking some, but no matter how much is taken, they still seem to have more as they, as they don't run out of the sustenance that is required as ever, start, ripples of conversation are going out amongst the crowd. Where is all this food coming from? How come everybody seems to have enough? And everybody in the crowd miraculously is fed on this particular moment. And once everybody has eaten, and that, that key phrase for every New Zealander, and was satisfied, say amen. amen. The Bible says, right, now you, Munji lot, grab a basket, and each of you go out there with a basket and pick up what is left over. Now we know again from reading other, other versions of the story that it was one schoolboy's lunchbox. One kid bought five loaves of bread and two fish with him. What fit in his backpack 
Now each of the disciples has a basket of broken pieces that are left over. Jesus, Jesus made each disciple pick up their own basket of leftovers to teach them that guys, it doesn't come back to whether or not there is a good enough plan or whether our strategy is complete. If God is going to move, if we're going to... Yeah, whatever this application is, it has nothing at all to do with what that text actually says. Again, this sign points to who Jesus is. In writ large, God, big food miracle, feeding a crowd, a multitude in the wilderness. Uh-huh. Points to who Jesus is. We're going to see a miracle take place. Then it's going to come back not to our our resources or our, our, our available stuff that we have on offer, but whether we are willing to engage in the process. We're going to ask ourselves... Are, are we willing to engage in the process? What are you talking about? It's a question tonight. Why did this miracle happen? I don't in order to show who Jesus was, John 6 explicitly says they recognized who Jesus was because of this sign. I've ever read before and read after, but if you read after this miracle, you will discover that the moment those disciples returned with the 12 basketfuls, the Bible says that immediately, in Mark's gospel, immediately, Jesus commanded the disciples to get into a boat and leave. Jesus alone dismissed the 5,000, and then he climbed a mountain to pray alone and to somehow do something that needed to happen following this environment. It was because of that, that Jesus went walking on the water. So the context of this is amazing. Why, why did Jesus perform this miracle? And why did the disciples have to get into a boat? And why, why was Jesus willing to do it when this miracle didn't work for him? This miracle worked against him. The reason why Jesus dismissed the disciples and said immediately, you guys get out of here, is that 5,000 men plus women plus children who miraculously were fed that day had the most fundamental need of their lives. This is in an agricultural age where every day, give us your this day, our daily bread was a legitimate prayer in this season of human history. It wasn't guaranteed that you would eat every day. Are you with me? And these people are miraculously fed and they're like, my gosh, whoever this dude is, we love you. We adore you. And these disciples, oh my gosh, we, we, we worship, we worship you. And Jesus wanted his... The, the people, the crowd said, we worship the disciples. What translation are you reading? Because that ain't in Luke either. Disciples to leave that environment quickly because the adulation of the people was not going to help them. And then he himself climbed a mountain and prayed alone to detox from the false love and, the, and the, 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 the desire that they had to follow him, not based out of who he was, but out of what he did for them. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you discover Jesus saying to the crowds, you are following me, not because you saw the miraculous signs and believed, but because I took a schoolboy's lunchbox and I fed you.
And because you've ate that meal, he said, literally, because you ate the bread, you want to now make me king by force. The Jews wanted to get rid of the Romans and make Jesus king in the place of Caesar because of this one miracle. But yet still Jesus did it. It didn't help his ministry. It hindered it. It didn't advance his plan. It retarded it. So we've got to ask the question, why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus do it? And the reason why was because Jesus' focus here on earth was never about what took place in the crowds. He was always focused on what was happening with the 12. And here he's training these young men. He's going to give them the church in one year. And here we've got 12 guys who've been anointed and gifted and they're charismatic and the crowds love them. And they've been preaching the gospel and healing the sick and thinking, I'm too Christian for my church. And as they've been walking in this journey, Jesus wanted to make it clear. We are not here, guys, for people to serve us. We are not here. No text says that either. Unbelievable. For crowds to be a, 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 a toy that is in our hands. We're not here to be served. We're here to serve. I want you to understand that we're not here to be blessed and we're not here to be loved. We're here to make a difference in the lives of people. We're here to serve them. We're here to serve their needs. We're here to help people. We're here to heal the broken. We're here to care about what people need. We are here to make a difference. Yeah, Jesus said the church is to be about the business of making disciples. Big difference between making disciples and making a difference. Jesus wanted these young cats to know, man, we don't exist for people to shout our fame. We don't exist for people to love us. We're not trying to garnish a following, establish an Instagram reputation. We're not here to be celebrities. We're here to make a difference in the lives of other people. And whether anybody ever... Where's that big discourse about Jesus saying we're here to make a difference? I'd like to see that one. Knows our name? Whether the crowds can recognize us or whether they don't, we're not here for people to serve us. We're here to be servant leaders for our generation. Do you love that? That Jesus was just teaching his disciples, guys, you're here to make a difference. They said, send the crowds away. We're bored with this toy. And he said, no, you give them something to eat. The disciples did not say we're bored with this toy. Unbelievable what this guy is doing to the scriptures. It's literally demonic. This position of leadership I gave you is so you can serve them. This supernatural ability I gave you is so that you could bless them. You don't do miracles and then turn it off like it's somehow just an inconvenient moment for you. You're here to make a difference. You're here to be the, the, the answer to the solution. And guys, in a world that values grandeur and not greatness, where everybody wants a profile and a reputation, but not necessarily to live a life of sacrifice for others. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? In a world that rewards self 
and not sacrifice. Jesus wanted to teach his disciples and I just have a feeling he's still trying to teach us, right? We do not live for ourselves. We live to benefit others. Now, granted, as Christians, we do not live for ourselves. We live to do our good works for our neighbors, for the sake of our neighbor, not ourselves. But that's not what the point of this text is. Here on this planet, anointed by God, given his ability for one reason alone. We are here to make a difference. No, we are not. And guys, this life that God has given to us, it's not a drill. It's not a game. It's not a toy. If there is any supernatural endowment on our life, any giftedness, anything that we are grateful for, any unique attribute, any skill, any talent, any ability, the reason why God gave it to us is so that we can make a difference. We're here to make a difference. Our lives resound for God's fame and for the blessing of people. That's what our lives are all about. And if we're going to live, yeah, come on, give God some praise tonight. If we're going to live the life that God wants us to live, if we're going to reach the heights God wants us to reach, we've got to step off the throne of our own hearts, stop buying into the pedestal that people put us on. We've got to start realizing that if there is any talent, it came from God. Any supernatural ability, it's because God entrusted it to us. And God wants us to make a difference in the lives of others with the abilities that He's given to us. Come on, if you believe that, shout a little amen out there. The the disciples saw the problem and they tried to get Jesus to, to understand there's nothing we can do about it. And Jesus saw the problem and He said, We must do something about it. And to embrace challenges, guys, to reach beyond our own happiness and to do something for the world around us, this is what it means to understand that our lives is not a drill. This is what it means to embrace the challenge that God has given to us. So notice now we are fully preaching about ourselves. This text is about Christ. And John has made this totally about us. Because in your problem is your purpose. What? In my problem is my purpose. What is this nonsense? In seeing the challenge that around us is the way that we discover what God has given us to do. If you want to be used by God, friend, then realize this. God's going to show you not a plan, but a problem. He's going to show you something that needs fixing. I remember being 19 years old and praying like crazy. God, would you send revival to New Zealand every day? I would pray for an hour every morning. I gave my Friday nights to God and my prayers were, God, would you send revival to New Zealand? And every time I prayed, I saw young people in high schools and I saw shopping malls filled with ordinary people. So I started an outreach program in my local shopping mall. It never did any good, but I think God broke my heart because of it. And I started working in high schools, talking to young people about Jesus. And God's going to show you a problem. And in showing you your problem, he's going to reveal your purpose. That's what- No text teaches this either. We never get to back away from our passion to make a difference. That's why the moment we turn it off, we're turning off God's plan. 
The moment we check out from making a difference is the moment that we step out of supernatural endowment, guys. Have you checked out of making a difference? And that's why God wants you and I to live our lives to make a difference. I want to give you three points and I've got 30 seconds left. So here we go real quick. Number one, making a difference. It doesn't depend on our ability. If you want to make a difference with... So you have... What biblical text says these things about making a difference? Life, if you want to continually be leaning into God, then the one thing we've got to turn off in our minds is any rationalization that comes through saying, I don't have the ability. The disciples did not have a mass catering background. They didn't know how to feed 12,000 people. I'm, I'm intimidated by feeding my two children when Jillian's away for a weekend, let alone feeding 12,000 people. But guys, those who have changed history have this in common. They all had great reasons to doubt their ability. Abraham waited 33 years for a child, but God called him the father of many nations. Moses had a stuttering problem and God told him to go to the first world ruler and command that the Israelites would be set free. Jeremiah was a young guy, too young to even speak publicly. And God said, I want you to prophesy to nations. Yeah, this, again, these texts have nothing to do with the feeding of the 5,000 at all. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God said, you're going to speak on behalf of a holy God. Deborah was a woman and God said, you're my choice to lead the men into battle. Gideon was a scaredy cat. And God said, I'm sending you to lead a frightened people to get victory of the army of Midian. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, yet God entrusted him with the gospel of Christ. And I want you to understand, it doesn't depend on our ability. It only comes back to our availability. What? Anybody in this room saying, God, if you can use anything, use me. That's the way that we're going to see miracles. That's the way that we're going to make a difference. Let's not make it about us. Yeah, just shout it. You know, he's become a shouty man. Let's make us make it about us being available for God. Number two, making a difference isn't limited by our resources. The disciples didn't have what it take to feed those 12,000 people that day. I remember when we planted a rise, we had nothing. I mean, we had nothing, nothing. We knew two people that lived in the greater Wellington area. That was it. And I remember walking into church one Sunday night. I can still remember the shape of the auditorium. I remember walking past a bleacher and this lady just grabs me and she says, I hear you're planning a church in Wellington. That lady's name was Annette Flett. Nathan and Annette are still a key part of a rise 15 years later, 16 years later. We needed a band. And I'll never forget, I was praying, God, give us musicians. God, give us musicians. And I walked into Lafare Cafe, my first ever time there. And this guy walked up to me and said, you're John Cameron, aren't you? He was one of the waiters. I said, yes, I am. He, he said, well, I, I, what are you doing here? I said, I'm starting a church. He said, I play guitar. Great. That was our guitarist for the first several years of our, our church. I mean, you know, I remember, I remember uh, getting a phone call one day from this youth leader from Matter Matter, and she said, I'd like to come and just 
see you and Jillian. She sat in our lounge room on the floor. Remember that she sat on the floor. I don't know why, but she sat on the floor. And she said, I'd like to move to Wellington with you. That was Kelly Meyer, now Kelly Teal. I was so shocked that anybody wanted to come. Jeff and Rochelle were key youth leaders in Hamilton. Rochelle was a big deal preaching all around the place. And they said, man, we want to resign our church and come and come be with you guys in Wellington. I was like, what? That's crazy. But the truth is that didn't we didn't have the resources. But God, once he put his hand upon it, once he decided to bless it. See, friends, the interesting thing about this passage is that God got an idea. And friends, it's not about whether or not we have the resources. It doesn't matter whether we have what it takes. It only matters whether God has got an idea. And when God gets an idea, it will always be too big for us. But uh-huh. Yeah, so this is about God getting an idea. Nope, it's not about that either. This text is about Jesus. God ideas lead to supernatural experiences. What? God ideas lead to supernatural experiences. Since when are we supposed to chase after those? I am finished. The band can come and join me. Making a difference means giving of yourself. Making a difference is not about your ability. It's not about your resources. But if Jesus wants us to know anything, team, he wants us to know that we have to give ourselves away. The disciples were reluctant to go beyond their own comfort to do something for others. And Jesus said, you give yourself away and I'll give myself away. Uh, what? You give yourself away and I'll give myself away. If you break the bread and hand it to somebody else, if you give yourself away, then I'll give my miraculous power away. And anybody willing to give what they have? Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was not contingent upon anybody being willing to do anything except for Jesus. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. What is this theology? ...is going to find that God is going to meet you there and do the most amazing things through your life. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional... Manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, uh, getting them to make decisions of one kind or another. God is looking for a group of people that are going to understand we're here to make a difference. You're here to make a Yeah, that's not the point of the feeding of the 5,000. Difference. You're alive. You're destined by God. You have a gift. This is not a drill. And together, we are here to make a difference for God. Does anybody believe they can make a difference for Jesus? Come on, how about in the balcony? Anybody believe that you can make a difference for God? Come on, why don't you stand to your feet tonight, church? All over the service. We used to sing this song many years ago. Done. What a mess. What a mess. Yeah, every one of them today, uh, you know, engaged in a particularly sneaky form of Bible twisting. And hopefully you found that helpful as we um, demonstrated what exactly these men were doing and how they were twisting God's word. (sighs) Yep, and uh, Christ and him crucified for our sins, not preached. 
the preaching of God's law to convict us of our sin and the need for us to repent and to be forgiven, not preached at all. Yeah, really the focus was us. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>